John Roebling was a building genius. His specialty was bridges, and when his life's dream of building a bridge from Manhattan to Brooklyn came to fruition in 1883, it was the longest and tallest bridge in the world. Sadly, John Augustus Roebling died building his bridge. As he was surveying in preparation for the construction, his foot was crushed between a ferry and a piling. It had to be amputated, and he died a short time later of, t of a tetanus infection. After that, before the construction even began, everyone said that this building project just could not be done. This was a structure that was just too difficult to create. The architectural challenges were just too great. The physical demands were just too much. But his son, Washington, would not listen and continued to work on his father's dream, despite the words of the naysayers. And then Washington Roebling was hurt. He began to suffer from decompression sickness, from working on the construction in the river. At that time, it, decompression sickness, as they built uh, pilings deep into the earth, un, under the water, they, didn't, they weren't familiar with how to deal with it, and decompression sickness was a problem. He ultimately, he was paralyzed. His, uh, he had brain damage. He lost his ability to speak. And many, again, said, give it up. But he didn't. He, he simply found another way to build. And it was ingenious. With the help of his wife, Emily, he discovered he could communicate by tapping with one finger on her arm. So with her help, he began to tap out messages on her arm with his finger and developing a system of communication that allowed him to, to message the builders day in, day out. And he continued to do so as she studied construction mechanics so she could be able to understand what he was saying. And he tapped with her, his finger on her arm day in, day out for the next 10 years. They continued that way until the bridge was completed. He watched from his window as he was lying in bed. Little by little, the bridge began to take shape. And his passion and his determination with his wife's tireless Tireless patience and perseverance paid off, and it led to the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge in 1883. And it, it was a marvel that stands to this day. In 1883, it was by far the longest suspension bridge in the world, 1,595 and a half feet from the massive stone tower on the Manhattan side to the matching tower on the, on the Brooklyn side. The Brooklyn Bridge was an amazing structure. It was a marvelous wonder of man's ingenuity, his skill, and his productivity. Throughout history, man has designed and built amazing structures. Uh, the Great Pyramids of Egypt, the Taj Mahal, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai more recently, which rises 2,717 feet, has 209 floors. It's that massive building. Perhaps you've seen a picture of it in, in Dubai. And that tower has stood as the, both the tallest building in the world and the tallest man-made structure of any kind in the world since it was completed in 2010. And, and these buildings give, or you might say, or symbolize man's potential for greatness. Their size, their beauty, their engineering genius symbolizes man's productivity and man's ability to construct great things. In 1987, I visited the Twin Towers in New York City with my wife-to-be's family at that time. And as we came into the building, we were able to go into a, an elevator, an express elevator that went directly to the top, 1,800 feet in this express elevator. And it still, at, with, at, in that express elevator, it took a full 60 seconds to go all the way up to the top, one full minute at, uh, at top speed. So it was uh, a, an impressive sight to stand at the top of the Twin Towers and look at the surrounding city. Very, very, uh, very impressive sight to be able to see that area. But all I could think about as I was going up and I was coming down in the elevator was the plumbing. And all I could think about was how in the world were they able to design a system where they could move water not only down, but up through this massive construction, both these, these two twin towers. How could they maintain the pressure in these massive buildings? 
Man has built and used amazing structures over his history. But have you ever thought about how God has used great structures, great buildings as well? See, some of the most poignant and important lessons in the Bible are told through God's great buildings. I like to tell the story of God's great buildings today because for all of man's hopes and dreams that are reflected in his great building marbles, what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do outshines man's greatest efforts. Ironically, the first great building that we come to in the Bible was built in defiance of God. Let's go to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, where we read about the Tower of Babel. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of man had built. So note some of the characteristics of this great building, this building work of mankind. Number one, it was... It was uh, it was an, built in an atmosphere of defiance, an atmosphere of rebellion against God. Number two, a second characteristic that we can gather is that it was a gathering place of re- rebellious minds, a gathering place of those who are antagonistic towards God, who are hostile towards God, a rebe- of a rebellious mind. And, and thirdly, it was a place for the promotion of, a false worship, false religion, a place to to practice and to teach a a false anti-God system. You might say it was a repository of false knowledge, both a place to learn, to study, and to promulgate false knowledge. And we know the story God saw to its destruction. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't recognize the utility and the usefulness of buildings. Going forward, we see his command to Moses to construct a a temporary building, which he would use to place his presence among the Israelites, the the tabernacle. Let's go to Exodus 25. Exodus 25. And we read here in Exodus 25, 26, and 27 about the tabernacle. This is... Verse 1 of Exodus 25, he said, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold and silver and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light, spices. Verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So if we flip forward through the account here, we see Exodus, well, going to chapter 27 and 28 and 29 and 30. We can flip forward all the way, really, to to chapter 40, where we read in the last few chapters there of the, the account of the performance of the work that was involved in building the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle served as a, a temporary building, but as Jerusalem was established as the place where God would set his name, David recognized that the tabernacle, this temporary building, was not enough. So we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let's flip forward. 2 Samuel chapter 7. <clears throat> Verse 1, it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? 
For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with the children of Israel, verse 7, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And he goes on and talks to, uh, continues the thought with David. But verse 12, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And no, David, you won't build a house for me, but your son will. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we see that God determined to have a temple uh, a beautiful place of worship, but it was not David who would build it. It would be Solomon, his son. But David was to be involved in the preparations. As we begin to get into this great building of God, the tabernacle, the rather the temple at Jerusalem. So we see verse, uh, let's go to First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 18. First Chronicles 21:18, And we see that David was given information about the location, where it was to be. First Chronicles 21, verse 18. Therefore, <clears throat> we're breaking into the, the account here, uh, certainly uh, of, of the plague that came upon Israel, but I want to just catch these last verses that deal with the tabernacle, I mean the temple rather specifically. Verse 18. Therefore, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Remember, the Jebusites were the former inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so we see here that there were instructions. Uh, Verse 19, David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid himself, but Ornan continued threshing wheat. So David came to Ornan. And Ornan looked and saw David, and he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. So we see that in this case that this place was was selected as the place that uh, David should build an altar. Verse 26, we read about that. Um, God approved of the place from what we read in verse 26 because David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord and he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of the burnt offering. So we see that this location was determined to be a special location to construct an altar to God, this this area that was built on this uh, rocky outcropping north of the city, uh, above the city. and But we see it has a connection historically. Second Chronicles chapter 3. Now we're, we're going to see that ultimately this is the spot for the building of the tabernacle. But first we see, and again, we know that David was not to build the temple, rather. I said the tabernacle again, but David was not to build the tabernacle, but he was to prepare for the building of the, of the temple. Okay, let's go back to Second uh, Chronicles chapter 3. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, where we see that this location we've been reading about is where the temple would be established. So Second Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So that's ultimately where the temple was built. And um, But we want to go back. I mentioned the history, Genesis chapter 22, because this spot, as I, I mentioned, has a history to it. Genesis chapter 22. You see, this was the same location that Abraham offered his son Isaac or began to offer his son Isaac before God stepped in and said, no, there will be no sacrifice of any human except my son who will give his life for all of mankind. But we see here Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1, 
It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And then he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So we see that this, this, uh, this mountain and the land of Moriah is pointed to. And it's as you read through the account and you see how ultimately God said, no, I will provide for you. And uh, ultimately Abraham was not required to give his son. Yet this, this spot, the mountains uh, on the land of Moriah, is, is noted as we go through the story. Okay, back to David's uh, preparation of materials. First Chronicles 22. So that location, that Mount Moriah, is, is the historical backdrop or the historical uh, location, uh, ultimately, of the, tab, the, the temple that was to be built. First Chronicles chapter 22, we see David's preparation of materials. First Chronicles 22, verse 1. Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land of Israel. He appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates and for the joints, and bronze in abundance beyond measure, and cedar trees in abundance for the Sidonians, and those from Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. And we see here verse uh, 25, David said, Solomon, my son, is young and experienced, and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparations for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. And verse 6, he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And we see how this is described in the, the verses here throughout the rest of the, of the chapter. So we see that David prepared materials um, later in First Chronicles chapter 28, First Chronicles 28, verses one. Well, the better part of the of the chapter here, we see specifics about the uh, instruction to build the temple. But I want to draw your attention specifically to to verse eleven. Then David it says gave his son Solomon the plans for the vestibule, its houses its treasuries, its upper chambers, its inner chambers, and the place of the mercy seat, and the plans for all that he had by the spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord, of all the chambers all around, of the treasuries of the house of God, and of the treasuries for the dedicated things, also for the division of the priests and the Levites, for all the work of the service of the Lord, of the house of the Lord, and for all the articles of service in the house of the Lord. So Solomon was given instructions by David, and David said these were instructions were specifically inspired by God. So God was very intentional about the building of the temple. He was extremely intentional about what he was doing. As to the where, we, say, we see he gave very specific instructions as to the where, the when, during Solomon's reign, it was the right time for this. As the kingdom of Israel was, was established after David's death, who it was to be, Solomon, not David, and, and even the how. God inspired the details in verses 11 and 12. We, we read about that as we just did. So if we want to jump to Second Chronicles and just do a, just a quick overview of some of the, some of the details... Second Chronicles chapter two. Second Chronicles two. We see here how Solomon began to prepare to build the temple and then do so. We see Solomon determined to build a temple, verse, verse one of Second Chronicles two, for the name of the Lord and a royal house for himself. Solomon selected 70,000 men to bear burdens, 80,000 to quarry stone in the mountains, and 3,600 to oversee them. And you can read about more about that in the succeeding chapter, the rest of chapter 2 and, and chapter 3. 
uh, chapter 4, the furnishings of the, of the temple. So the Bible goes into great detail about the detail of the temple. God was intentional. He was involved. And it was something that was uh, he was going to use for a, a purpose. I'll just give you a brief overview, a, a thumbnail sketch of what we read through these, these chapters in terms of some of the details. The, the inside ceiling of Solomon's temple was 180 feet long, 90 feet wide, and 50 feet high. So that's the size of this building. The highest point, however, in the temple was 207 feet. Now, that was actually, that's 20 stories. I, I say that is a bit different from the 100, rather the 50 feet high that I mentioned before, the, the inner dimensions, because the 207 feet was part of a, a, a porch or a, a, a front area that actually rose up in front of the, of the temple that was the 50 foot high portion. So it was in two, two areas in terms of the height and the dimensions. But we see that um, over 3,000 officials were appointed to see the work of upwards of 150,000 workmen on this building. I, I was trying to get an idea as I was looking at some of the descriptions of the, of the, the gold and the silver and the precious jewels and the wood um, that was part of the temple. And in doing so, I thought, well, what would be a good comparison from the cost of today's buildings. So I'd like to just give you uh, just a little bit of, of detail about the world's most expensive buildings today. Uh, here, I'll just give you a couple. The One World Trade Center in New York. One World Trade Center in New, in New York costs, uh, this is as of 2019, so the figures are about a year old. But One World Trade Center costs $4.1 billion to build. Um, the Palace of the Parliament in Bucharest cost $3.9 billion. Um, in Singapore, Marina Bay Sands, which is a, a major hotel complex in Singapore, costs $6.2 billion to build. So it gives you an idea. We're talking four, five, six billion dollars to build these particular buildings. And the most expensive building on the planet at this point is actually the um, Masjid al-Haram, or the Great Mosque of Mecca, the, the complex that, that surrounds the, the, the Kaaba, this, uh, this court where Muslims go and uh, to Mecca, and they uh, they walk around this building that houses these different objects there in uh, in Saudi Arabia. So the cost of the Masjid Al Haram is estimated because it has ongoing work that's been going on for a long, long time. The estimate is about a hundred billion dollars that this particular mosque. It's the largest mosque in the world, and that is the estimated cost of, of it as, as a building altogether. So that gives you an idea. Let's say $100 billion in terms of the most exp exp expensive buildings today. Well, how about the value of Solomon's temple? Well, if we look at what we read in 1 Chronicles 22 and 29 and also in 1 Kings chapter 5 and we, and we lay out some of the details, we find that in, in terms of Solomon's, the gold in Solomon's temple that about 108,000 talents of gold were used in the building of the temple. 108,000 talents of gold. Now, one talent is approximately 75 pounds. So if we multiply one talent or 75 pounds times, uh, which would, would, would give us then uh, eight Eight billion one hundred million. I'm sorry, eight million one hundred thousand one hundred eighty-seven and a half pounds of gold. Okay, again, that's eight million eight point one million pounds of gold. We multiply that times sixteen ounces per pound, which would give us one hundred and twenty-nine million six hundred three thousand ounces. We multiply that figure times the, the price of gold today, which is 
Oh, about $1,800. The last I checked was $1,881 per ounce for, for gold. So we multiply that, the cost of gold per ounce, times the total amount of ounces in 108,000 talents. And what we're looking at is around $244 billion just in the gold, the cost of the gold, today's cost in the gold that was used in the temple. Now, people will debate some of these figures as to if they're exaggerated or what have you. Um, we could go round in circles, but that's what the Bible, that's what the, the figures the Bible gives us. How about silver? How about silver? We read again in those same chapters that there were 1.017 thousand, I'm sorry, 1,017,000 talents of silver that were used. 1,017,000 talents. Well, we multiply that again times how many pounds were in a talent and how many ounces in a pound. And what we come up to is just over $3 billion in silver that was used in the temple. So that doesn't include all the precious metals, the iron, the ivory, the cedar wood, all the different other types of wood. So you get a sense, at least by comparison, as to the value that was put into the temple at Jerusalem. It was a staggering amount of, of, of value and quality that was put into this building. In 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 7, we read that it was built of stone made ready before it was brought there so that no hammer or axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. So it's a remarkable testimony to the engineering and the construction skill of ancient peoples. Because in order to erect this magnificent temple, every portion was so carefully fabricated away from the construction site that the building had to be completely erected in reverent silence. And the stones were not small and rough either. Uh, we read in 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 17 how they brought great stones, costly stones, huge stones to lay the foundation of the house. So they were quarried from the limestone beds beneath the city, apparently, and they had to be fabricated and brought to the temple. They had to be hewn. They had to be measured carefully. Everything had to be measured exactly before it was brought to the temple area ready to be laid in place. And these were massive, massive stones as well. Now, let's go to Second Chronicles chapter 6. Second Chronicles 6. Just a couple chapters from where we last were reading here, where we read about the dedication of the temple. The Lord said, verse 1, Solomon spoke, The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. And we see verse 3, the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, since the day that I brought up my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build my house that my name might be there, nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. Yet I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people. And it goes on and describes, he describes David's desire to build and Solomon's fulfillment of building this great house for God. And as we read the dedication here, ultimately we see the, the intent was to uh, please God, recognizing that God could not dwell in a, a temple and yet this was to honor God. Verse 18, But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which we have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be opened toward this temple day and night, toward the place you said you would put your name, and that you, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. For all its beauty and, and genius of design, let's not forget the underlying reasons that God inspired this building to be constructed. And interestingly, it's, it's for the same reasons that I mentioned earlier 
with that great building in the city that came to be called Confusion or Babel. Number one, the Solomon's Temple, we'll say Solomon's Temple for God, it was a building to establish a common gathering place, a common ground of assembly. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Deuteronomy chapter 12, we read that God would place his name at a point in the land where he placed his people. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1, These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you to possess. So destroy all these pillars and images. He says, verse 5, But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. You shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks, and there you shall eat before the Lord. And he goes on to describe that further. So God intended to establish a place where he would set his name. And this building, Solomon's Temple, was a a part of his design at this point that did that. A common gathering place, an assembly of his people at that place. And secondly, that building then established uh, an atmosphere. Now, I talked about the atmosphere that the Tower of Babel established. It was a very different atmosphere. In this case, we see this building establish an atmosphere of quality, of grandeur, of reverence towards God. You know, this is what great buildings do, don't they? I mentioned the Twin Towers before. Um, of course, they're, they're gone now. But that first time that I saw the Twin Towers, as I was walking down the sidewalk approaching these towers, I mean, you can't, you, you can't, you have to look almost backwards as you look up to try to track the, the towers as they rise above you. It was so massive and so impressive that the only way that I could really get a good picture of it was to lie down on the ground on the sidewalk and take a picture uh, of the buildings above me as they, as they rose because they're so massive. Of course, some of the people around me were a little bit embarrassed of my obvious lack of, um, oh, well, I, I clearly wasn't from New York City and was clearly a guest, and so um, they... They, I stood out like a sore thumb in the, the midst of the New York City pedestrians going up and down the, the sidewalk. Uh, but, but it was so massive, that's the impact that it had upon me and that it has upon people as they would go up and down. And this is the way great buildings are, whether it's the Taj Mahal or the Great Pyramids or the Brooklyn Bridge or the Great Mosque or the great buildings that are in existence today or have been over the centuries, they, they establish an atmosphere. Now, one of the blessings that I was able to enjoy while I went to Ambassador College was to see Ambassador Auditorium, this building that was built to honor God. We had our church services there. We had uh, performances of great musicians. And uh, at night, sometimes with the lights on, and the area around the, the auditorium all lit up. You could stand back up the hill and look at this beautiful building. And clearly, it, it, it created a, a sense of, of, of awe and wonder for the beauty that was produced in that building. And honestly, as, uh, as you're able to be in that building and walk around, it helps, frankly, to establish an atmosphere of quality and excellence that uh, really facilitated an honoring of God because it, it, was, it was a place where you appreciated the, uh, the fact that God has designed beauty, even in buildings. And uh, so we were able to worship God there. We were able to, uh, to honor God. And uh, even the building itself, it helped to create this, this atmosphere. And I would I can only compare it to what we read about in the Bible with, with Solomon's temple, where the beauty and the grandeur inspired in people a sense of, a, of an honor for God and a reverence towards, towards God. And the third point that I wanted to mention in terms of great buildings and how God used the temple was that great buildings often provided a designated 
repository of learning. Now, I mentioned that in terms of the Tower of Babel, how it was a place where there was false worship or a false worship system was established and taught. In this case, we see that the, the temple was used as a place to teach the things of God. And it was constructed to teach the things of God and to be a repository of the things of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, we read how kings were to get a copy of the law from the priests, from the one that was in the temple, uh, ultimately, and copy that law. And the tabernacle, certainly at, when Deuteronomy was written, but ultimately the, the, tab, the temple was the place where God's law was uh, taught was learned and also was a repository of of the the writings and the records of God's law. And you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 17 to to read that little note about about kings and how uh, they were required to to read and learn and study that law again kept at the at the temple. So in, in 586 BC that temple that building we've been talking about here was destroyed. And 70 years later, after a small contingent of Jews returned from Babylon, then they did what they recognized was so important. They restored the temple, not to its former glory, but as best they could. Ezra chapter 3, Ezra 3 and 4 and 5, we read about that. Ezra chapter 3. We see verse 1, when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. And you can see how as you go down through the chapter, the restoration of the temple begins in verse 8 and 9. We see uh, all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. We see in chapter 4 how there's a resistance to building the temple, but how that resistance was overcome. And in chapter 5, we read about how, again, the, the work of restoring the temple began. And they continued to work on that. And in uh, Ezra chapter 6 and verse 15, we see it was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of of King Darius, so it was completed. Then we uh, we can see clearly that it was it was completed and used by the people, as they recognized the importance of that place, that building. How was it used? Again, first as a common gathering place, an anchor, a place they knew that God had set His name. Secondarily. It was a place of atmosphere. It was an environment that was established, which, again, is so important. Our environment shapes us. And so an atmosphere of learning was established, of learning God's way was established at the temple. And and, and thirdly, it was that place uh, and repository of learning, not just to go and chant or sing or... Uh, or or simply to just carry on social affairs, but it was a place of learning, a place to learn of the ways of God. So we see those three purposes that God used buildings for here in in the Scriptures continue forward. Now, when we speed forward to the time of Christ, we see these same characteristics. Let's go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and we'll read here in verse verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the the custom of the feast. So you know the story here, how uh, he was left in Jerusalem. And where did they find him? Verse 46. So it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And that all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So we see him sitting in the temple, learning, listening, and in this this atmosphere of, of learning. The temple, in this case, was the building that represented the, the final authority in the land, the final religious authority, the things of God 
emanated from here. Decisions, um, descriptions, the teachings of God's law emanated from this place. It was a place to learn and gather to learn. And this temple, Herod's temple, was a magnificent building. The temple that we're looking at right here, that is mentioned here. The disciples were very familiar with this great building. Matthew chapter 24. Let's go back to Matthew 24. This was a different building than the one we read about during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Matthew 24, we read verse 1, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. So they were very impressed with what Herod had done. This is an excerpt I'd like to read, take a couple of minutes and read from a book called Jerusalem, the Biography by Simon, uh, sorry, Simon Montefiore. Simon Montefiore. It's, if you want to read in detail about Jerusalem, the temple in particular, and the building of Jerusalem and Jerusalem's history, this book is, uh, is really excellent, very readable and uh, fascinating book. But here's, here's how he describes the, the grandeur of Herod's temple. He says, knowing, and I'm taking an excerpt here, knowing that the prestige of Jerusalem was linked to his own, Herod decided to equal Solomon. Herod pulled down the existing second temple and built a wonder of the world in its place. The Jews were afraid he would destroy the old temple and never finish the new one, so he called a meeting to persuade them, preparing every detail. A thousand priests were trained as builders. Lebanese cedar forests were felled. The beams floated down the coast. At quarries around Jerusalem, the massive ashlar stones, gleaming yellow and almost white limestone, were marked and cut out. A thousand wagons were amassed, but the stones were gargantuan. In the tunnels alongside the Temple Mount, there is one stone 44.6 feet long, 11 feet high, that weighs 600 tons. No din, no hammering have polluted the building of Solomon's temple, so Herod ensured that everything was readied off-site and silently slotted into place. The Holy of Holies was ready in two years, but the entire complex was not completed for 80. Herod dug down to the foundation rock and built from there so he would have destroyed any remnants of Solomon's and Zerubbabel's temples. Though limited to the east by the steepness of the Kidron Valley, he expanded the esplanade of the Temple Mount to the south, filling the space with a substructure held up by 88 pillars and 12 vaulted arches, now called Solomon's Stables, to create a three-acre platform twice as large as the Roman Forum. The courts of the temple led in diminishing size to ever-increasing sanctity. Gentiles and Jews alike could enter the huge court of Gentiles, but a wall encircled the court of women with this warning inscription. Foreigner, do not enter within the grill and partition surrounding the temple. He who is caught will have only himself to blame for his death, which will follow. And then he goes on to describe the, the courts and the gate. I just want to read this part. It says, uh, ver, uh, the design of the temple, supervised by the king and his anonymous architects, showed a brilliant understanding of space and theater. Dazzling and awe-inspiring, Herod's temple was covered all over with plates of gold, and at the first rising of the sun, reflected back a fiery splendor so bright that visitors had to look away. Arriving in Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, it reared up, quote, like a mountain covered with snow. He's reading from accounts of, at the time, of particularly Josephus and others. This was the temple that Jesus knew and that Titus destroyed. So this gives, just gives a quick peek into the grandeur of the temple that was, that actually even, uh, although it was built by Herod, uh, a godless man, it was used by God for a purpose at the time of Christ. And for those same three purposes that I've mentioned here two or three times already. Now, there is a temple that we bypassed in the Bible. We bypassed it because it is prophesied for the future, even though it was written a long time ago. Ezekiel, rather. Ezekiel chapter 40. Ezekiel 40. I'll simply draw your attention to it here. 
where we read Ezekiel chapter 40 and 41 and 42 and 43 and 44 and 45 and 46 and 47, where ultimately we read of the healing waters coming out of this building, the temple. These chapters describe the temple that will be established in the new city as we move forward to the time of the millennium. Now, this temple will be extremely uh, large. It will be much larger in size, multiples larger in size than Herod's temple. If you look at some of the the drawings and some of the dimensions, it's about uh, 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 five or six times in, in size, and which is also Herod's temple was larger than Solomon's temple, but it's a, ma- a massive complex. And again, at the time in the future, it will be the place from which authority is extended to gather, to establish and promote an atmosphere of worship and of reverence for God, and to teach and to learn. These, these uh, uh, characteristics of this temple will be part of the future temple that we read about here in, in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 47. But back to Matthew 24. We left Christ with his disciples teaching at the temple. Matthew 24. And we read verse 2. Back in Matthew chapter 24, verse 2. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Not one stone. Not one stone. So he taught them something from this point about the, the end of the age, but he, he taught them something else. You see, God used the marvel of human ability to create buildings. We've read about that to some degree. And, and so God's encouragement to do so, even God's guidance in doing so through the design, through the plans, the adding of skill, all of this physical elf effort could lend itself to a good purpose, to providing a place to gather, for God's people to gather together, to fellowship, to worship together, to providing an atmosphere, to providing a repository of learning and and the exercise of, of learning, the practice of learning. But Christ taught them that all of this was only a physical system for something more. See, Christ turned their world upside down. This magnificent temple that they were showing to him, that would be destroyed. The building, the temple, certainly was important, yet it was not all about the building. And the words of Jeremiah certainly rang with this lesson. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. And he said, verse 3, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Verse 4, Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Because ultimately, verse, verse 12, he said, It's not about the temple. The temple will not save you. It cannot be used as an idol. The place cannot be used as a replacement for what is supposed to happen when you gather together in this atmosphere to learn God's ways and to live God's ways. And verse 12, he said, But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. So Christ had already begun back here through inspiring Jeremiah, to plant the seeds of understanding of how great buildings can be used, but there's something more. There's something more that God is doing. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. Back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, where he said to verse 18, he told his disciples, Peter in particular, I also say to you that you are Peter, And on this rock himself, as the chief cornerstone we know, I will build my church, and the gates of the grave shall not prevail against it. So we see that he introduces this concept of building, of God building his church. Not just a physical building, 
but his body of believers. And we read more about that in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And we read here, rather chapter 2, I should say. Chapter 2, where Paul taught, he said, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit." So, verse 22 emphasizes that ultimately it's about the individual as part of the whole. God is very intentional. He's called us individually by design. He's called us with purpose, and he's placing us in his building, and he's also building us as a building, you might say, ourselves individually. And he's just as intentional with us. He's just as intentional with his church as he was with Solomon's temple. Instructing as to the who and the where and the when and the how. See, in a way, the most amazing building that God is working on is you. And, I hope, me. See, the purpose of the temple of Solomon was not about the building itself. It was a means. It was a mechanism, part of a system to strengthen the nation and the individual. God is a body builder, you might say. Not a physical body, but a spiritual body builder. With the temple at Jerusalem, it was the person who was bettered by assembling, a gathering to a place in unity and harmony with others. It was the individual who was brought into harmony with God and with their neighbor by being an by being in a place where there was an atmosphere of respect for God, worshiping God, recognizing that even the Holy of Holies, this place could only be entered once a year by the high priest. It was an atmosphere of of reverence and respect and deference and worship for God that was part of the environment. It wasn't just there to exist. It was for a purpose. And it was the person, the individual, every individual, not just the priests, not just the king, but every individual who is built and strengthened, the pillars of truth in their heart, made strong by the truth that emanated from the temple, the knowledge that was, was disseminated. Now, that's the same principle that's even more true from the time that the Holy Spirit was poured out on his church. Look at something, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You see, they were at the temple. The temple was still serving its purpose even as the church was pointed to a new concept of the importance of the individual even when the building is gone. Acts chapter 2, we see here in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord with one place, and there appeared to them, verse 3, divided tongues as of fire. We read here verse uh, four and five, how where they were was uh, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. When the sound occurred, verse six, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And so we can see uh, as you go through the account here, I'm not going to read the whole chapter here, but they were actually at verse 11, we read this 14 rather, as Peter gives this sermon, they were gathered together in the place where teaching was, was done, and they were gathered together in, this, in, in the temple. And uh, you can read throughout this, this whole section to see how that, how that took place. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. So the temple was used as a gathering place, and then as time went by, lessons were gained from this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, how then uh, Paul, as he taught the church at Corinth, said, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? which you have from God, and you are not your own. 
Therefore, he says, you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify your God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So this, this understanding of the temple and all the temple was about was brought into a very personal way with the individual. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 21. We read about putting off the, the old man. And, grow, and, and verse 22, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. God is, you might say, he's building, he's creating, he's building in us. He's renewing us. He's building us as a new creation. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Second Corinthians 5, Another place that is used here, Paul uses this, this concept of building. Chapter 5, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So the reality is that God is building us. Every trial, every sickness, every failure, and every success are part of the brick and mortar uh, in the building of you and me. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We read an extensive review of this, this concept and the purpose for the tabernacle and the temple. But we come to verse 11. Let's just read uh, verse 11. Well, let's go back to verse 6. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, it's talking about first the tabernacle, and then these, these objects were placed in the temple. Verse 6, now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the service, but into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance, the Holy Spirit indicated this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. But understand here, verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. So it's pointing towards something more, whether it's a tabernacle or the temple. And the rest of the chapter emphasizes that. I'm just going to refer you to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's jump forward to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's, let's go ahead and read verse 18. Beginning in verse 18. He said, verse 18, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burn with fire and to blackness and darkness, darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and, temp and trembling. But verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. We have come, in that sense, he says, we, we, we come to the tabernacle, the temple, the mount of God, the place of God. We come to that place as God works with us, as and we, we're part of, of the whole legacy and the history of people with whom God is working and building over the last 2,000 years and more. We come to this, this place together to be part of, you might say, the bricks and the stones and the mortar, large and small, who are part of this building even as we individually are being built by God at the same time. And he says, verse 24, or rather verse 23, to the general assembly and church of firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. In other words, they aren't floating around there today. But God knows who they are. He has a record of their, of their existence, their character, their personality. And, and he says, look, these people have, have gone before. They have left a legacy. 
And they have carried the, 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 the church forward throughout history. As you look back through church history, and we see those who have come before us who have been some persecuted and martyrs and martyred in, in horrifying ways that we, we can't even comprehend today, they're all part of that building as God was working with them and building them as he's building us. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So we're part of this building together, assembled together, even as God works with us. Now, God has, has planned and designed and seen to the buildings of great edifices over human history. The, the Temple of Solomon, its restoration, and, and even Herod's as it was patterned on the original. And, and by the way, uh, Mr. Wakefield has an article about this same topic here in the Living Church News dating back eight or nine years ago. If you want to read more about some of the details of the temple and of its import as a, an adjunct to what I'm talking about here today, look it up because it, it goes into some details similar to what we're talking about here today. And so, so God has, has built his church patiently, brick by brick, floorboard by by floorboard in our time that we've experienced, but that experience has gone back over the over the centuries, and and he's building us together as a church, quietly, patiently, every tongue and groove, every detail, every every tap of the chisel is part of building his church, and also building us, and we can appreciate that, we can be thankful for that. There's one more building project that we read about in the Bible that we should not neglect as we conclude. Revelation chapter 21. This amazing camp, capstone gives us a glimpse far into the future. And let's read what we, read, what we, what we can here in verse 9 of Revelation 21. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like jasper stone, clear as crystal. And she also, also she had a great, high, great and high wall with twelve gates, and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the west, and three gates on the, uh, on the south, and three gates on the west. And, and you read about the dimensions of this new Jerusalem. But we come to something in verse 22 that I think is a, a good spot to end. Because we read in verse 22, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations to it. And see... God, once again here, gives us the pattern of a city. And in this case, God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. See, ultimately, God's family, within God's family would be gathered all willing people, those who are willing to submit to God, will be gathered together. We won't be disunified. We won't be disorganized. We won't be separated and, and experiencing the divisiveness that is so much a part of our, our world. We will be gathered together in the family of God as part of, of, of God as, and, and his family. And we will also be part of the perfect environment in God's family, typified by his temple here. We'll be part of, we'll be part of the perfect environment, the atmosphere that will be positive and uplift, uplifting and encouraging not negative like our world is today. And we will also be complete in knowledge and wisdom and understanding of God's way. John Roebling envisioned a structure that would be unique in the world for his time in the year 1883. He died, but his dream came to fruition 
through the work of his son, his wife, and the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of workmen who worked on that project. Through his word, God gives us a very real vision, not just of a bridge, but of a temple. He gives us examples of great and magnificent buildings through history that he used. But he also uses those not just for that time and place, but he uses those to teach us important lessons. Lessons about what he's doing with his church and what he is doing with us personally and points us to an eternity in which we will be part of his family, part of his temple forever and ever.